It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. I'm channeling my best Connor Pope today, uh, and I'm here with the wonderful Alison McGovern, trying to even slightly understand the confusingness of the next couple of weeks with Brexit. But I feel like, Alison, you're going to tell us everything well, about what's well, about to happen. Well, first, firstly, Steph, you have failed at the first hurdle I because said you who didn't I am, even I? say that you're the Deputy Director of Progress, and this is the Progressive Britain podcast, the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. You this is why say it. you normally host the podcast yeah. and I just talk rubbish. This is true. <laughs> well, yeah, this is why we get Connor to ask the questions, basically. This is, this is why. This is why Connor's fabulous. But anyway, other than the fact that obviously we are a wonderful podcast, I think we should probably start having a chat about Brexit, the thing because that we all we, love to talk about. Yeah, we, we, we not talk much about it. We haven't. But there is a lot going on over the next two weeks, more so than I think most people can wrap their heads around or have a really, you know, unless you spend all day every day thinking about these things, which joyfully you do, Yay. Uh, it's difficult to keep up with some of these things. So it is. let's have a look firstly at what's going to happen this week. So there's a lot going on this week, particularly you've been doing, you've got lots going on with the Treasury Select Committee. So basically this is the sort of post-economic report week in that Last week, we basically had a sort of super Thursday of government economic analysis of Brexit. It turned out not to be that super, actually, mm. but I'll come back to that in a second. So last uh, week, we had the Treasury's analysis of um, what could happen in Brexit. Now, the first thing to say about that is the Treasury are sort of slightly... I think disowning would be a strong word to use, but they always call it the cross-Whitehall analysis because since the creation of the Office of Budget Responsibility by George Osborne, Treasury isn't in charge of forecasting anymore. Mm -hmm. So what they actually did was, if you can imagine, basically, the Government Economic Service, which works right across all government departments on economic questions, they got all of those people to do their best analysis of what the current situation is with Brexit and what we can expect. The problem with what they did was that, whereas... What we're going to be as MPs expected to vote for on the 11th of December is the withdrawal agreement and the political statement. It's not a deal, folks. It's, it's not just a deal. We've all, just yeah. a political statement. We're going to be expected to vote on that. That was not what all the government economists investigated. So what they actually investigated was the consequences of leaving the European Union without a deal of any sort. Mm -hmm. So 
leaving on what people call WTO terms. I mean, it's not strictly true to say it's as if we're a third country just operating on the WTO rules, because it is possible that you could make ad hoc agreements on certain things. But that's frankly a complexity we can all live without at this moment. It's not important Mm -hmm. right now, although it might be important in about three months' time. So they looked at WTO terms, effectively no deal. They looked at the EEA option, Mm -hmm. but crucially, just the EEA bit of it, not a customs union. So they looked at what would happen if Britain traded with the European Union on the same basis that Norway does. So effectively accepting all the rules of the single market, but not being part of the customs union. Yeah, And that quite predictably really has a quite a negative impact on manufacturing uh, in the UK, although it's better for services. Then they looked at not the political statement that the Prime Minister is suggesting, but, but they looked actually at the Chequers Agreement, the white paper that the cabinet was supposed to sign up to. And the point about that is, it's an impossible deal, like as has been demonstrated by the fact that the Prime Minister didn't manage to get the white paper agreed by the European Union. That is not what we're talking about. So then they looked at fi- the final sort of set of options they looked at is what would happen if we stayed in the European Union. And basically on every measure, the government finds that we're worse off leaving the European Union. The government, given their due, they say, well, but yes, but staying in the European Union is not on the table. I suppose the question for us as progressives is, given that most people think that we'd be better off staying in, is there a route still to staying in Europe, even at this late stage? Um, And, uh, you know, we'll definitely be talking about that over the next week. Meanwhile, the Bank of England basically gave a report on their responsibilities. So they're responsible. And they were asked to give this report, weren't they? Because that was one of the interesting things that I thought that happened last week was kind of Jacob Rees-Mogg and the kind of really hardline Brexiteers were like, this is outrageous that this is all happening on the same day. And it's like, they were asked to do it. Well, A, they were asked to do it. And also they had to do it last week because what's going on this week is Mm. that me and we're streeting and Catherine McKinnell and Roshanara Ali and some other Tories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and John Mann. And John Mann, and John who Mann. sit on the Treasury Select Committee, now get to question all of the people that produced these analyses so that we can then create a Select Committee report to inform the vote on the 11th. So they really had no choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had to deliver it so that we can review it and basically very quickly, very quick typing and and produce this report. So it's quite crucial. My real frustration is that Nikki Morgan, the Conservative Chair of the Treasury Select Committee, was quite clear she wanted a scenario of, of what the government was suggesting mm. exactly. So she basically wanted whatever their deal was, as we know it's not a deal, mm-hmm. but she wanted whatever their deal was to understand what that would mean in terms of economic growth, in terms of jobs, in terms of wages. We don't have that. Right. We essentially have what the government's ideal position was in terms of the white paper. So we've kind of been a bit critical, really, of that. And I think, as we have the Chancellor and others, to come and uh, give evidence to us, I could imagine there being even more criticism that basically the Treasury is really, they're not interested in giving people full factual information before they make their decision. Well, talking about not giving full factual information, one of the other things that's happening, I mean, we record this, we're recording this, what now, late Monday in that sense, so one of the other things that's happening today is obviously Theresa May's got her statement about the legal advice that's going on. And it's, you know, so it's obviously 
there was an amendment, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, you know, the government were told by the House, you have to publish the legal advice on what's going to happen. They correct. Really, they don't want to do that. So they've just gone. Correct. So nah, now you're all right. So now we're so now we're having a debate about whether the government is in breach of parliamentary uh, privilege, whether they, whether what powers the house has to compel the government to do it, and like essentially this is quite an important conversation because we are in uncharted territory. We're taking the biggest decision that our country will take in generations. We have a hung parliament, which is a very difficult situation under the UK constitution because. The way that the British parliamentary democracy functions is that governments necessarily have a majority in the House of Commons because in normal times, you can't be the government without having a majority in the House of Commons. That's what being the government means. You are the most popular people. Yeah, you won the general Ish. election, you get to be the government. But what happened was we basically had a general election of a dead heat, Yeah, which means that it's very difficult for the government to just outvote the commons. So when the commons outvotes the government... Does the government have to comply with the will of the House of Commons? That's the question we're debating. So all of this stuff about procedure and um, Parliament using its powers to compel the government and hold people in contempt and all the rest of it, it might seem like, you know, antiquarian nonsense, but it's a much bigger question. It's about whether in a situation where the elected House of Commons outvotes the government of the day what ought the response to be from the government of the day? Well, I mean, also, that's surely not going to be any... That's going to be so important, considering the fact that in the next couple of weeks, she's likely to lose the vote in the House of Commons. Exactly, exactly. But then if the government is still behind her, then what do they... You know, where does what that happens? power sit? Um, next week, we expect to vote on uh, the government's proposal, the withdrawal agreement and the political framework, the so-called meaningful vote that the government promised at the time of the withdrawal bill as you say Steph like what could quite realistically happen amongst one amendment or another mm. is that an amendment could be carried in defiance of the government what then happens you know we I think we would all feel that the government ought to respond but they don't have to and Theresa May could conceivably you know I hope that she doesn't but she could conceivably win a confidence motion which means that she car she carries on yeah. even if they choose to defy the will of the elected House of Commons. It's right. very strange. Let's get to next week. We'll, we'll move on to next week because, I mean, what quite the bumper week that we've got here. So, so far this week, we've got Treasury Select Committee and you'll be doing yeah. interviews and crossing, you know, questioning all of the people that have come up with everything that basically says stockpile the food. It's not going to be good. Yeah, but I mean, also basically... We'll perhaps come on to the fundamentals about what it tells us later. But, mm. but there'll be, I, I, I can imagine most of the committee who are leave, remain, Labour, Tory, SNP, will be quite cross with the way that the Chancellor has sort of treated our, our request that we have proper information about what the government is proposing in order to advise other members. They've treated that with genuine disrespect and I can't imagine that people will be thrilled about that. Hello, we've got... Philip Hammond treating you guys with total disrespect. Theresa May refusing to publish the legal advice. It's not good. And then we've got some other court cases that are going on at the moment. Oh, so... It's Bloody a, hell. So, so meanwhile, there's various cases, one of which I think off the top of my head is brought by the Scottish government about the processes around Article 50 and what the government should or shouldn't have done, whether it's revocable, whether we can unilaterally revoke Article 50 
All of those are due to come to kind of crunch points over the next week. And what happened previously when in the Miller case, where um, Gina Miller and others uh, demonstrated it legally that the government needed a vote of members of parliament to um, invoke Article 50 was that had a real impact hmm. on not the outcome, but on parliamentary procedure. So we're standing by in all directions. Right. So this week, everything's pretty pretty depressing. But next week, so this week we've got lots of kind of examining what's going on and, and kind of getting more information and figuring out yeah, the and actual the, reality and, of the and situation. And the debate, the debate in the House starts tomorrow. Yeah. So the Prime Minister will open and Jeremy Corbyn, I assume, will uh, respond for the opposition and then the debate will go on and on. And next week, as you were saying, is when we think there's going to be the meaningful vote. So the exact day of that at the moment is slightly well, up it's, in the air. It's currently timetabled for the 11th, but um, we obviously have the programme motion. So we have a timetabling motion at the start of many debates mm. and you can you know, amend programme motions to try and change the timings of debates. As I understand it, there is a, an amendment tabled by Clive Effort, a Labour MP, who wants to try and get more time simply because, look, backbenchers will not have a lot of time to speak. This will be the most important vote of, of many of our you know, political lives. Being able to explain to your constituents why you do one thing or another is pretty bloody important. Yeah. So there's the effort amendment to try and on time. We also saw last week um, that the amendment by Hillary Benn and other select committee chairs, including Sarah Wollaston, Rachel Reeves and others, basically saying that if the vote is lost, then the government must make sure that uh, we do not move to a potential no deal situation. And also that the government must bring forward then a motion about what happens next, which they're required to under the Act. They have to bring forward a motion. But this amendment is quite important because the motion that the government have to table in the House of Commons if they lose the vote is supposed to be unamendable. And what Hillary Benn's amendment to the vote does is make that further motion amendable. So it basically puts the House of Commons back in the driving seat as to what happens next rather, rather than, just than the, the government. government, which is that's why it's crucial. Mm. So I imagine that Hillary will get quite a lot of support for that. Keir Starmer said that he is supporting that, which means that there'll be Labour votes there mm. um, for that. So, And how about the Conservatives? Are there quite a few? Well, I think that there will be quite a lot of uh, Conservative MPs who will vote for that. I think we've got eight Conservative MPs already out for a a second vote for a, for a public vote on 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 this issue. We had Sam Guimar um, following Joe Johnson weekend, yeah. out of the government over the weekend. You know, I think Sam is somebody who, I, he was child care minister when I was shadow child care minister. And, um, you know, he's somebody who's, I think, is a Tory, but he's not hardline. Mm. So he, he'd be somebody who'd be indicative of the view of members of parliament who are sort of, you know, fairly concerned about Brexit on the Tory side. So I think that's, you know, there's a fairly healthy number there. So we will have to see what happens. Then we get to the big vote. You know, there's lots and lots of Tories already said they're voting against it. Labour are going to vote against it. SNP are going to vote against it. Plaid, Lib Dems. Big question about what the DUP do. They've said they're going to vote against it, but will they? So as soon as that happens, everybody will be pouring over the numbers. And, you know, it will be very, very interesting. You know, I heard somebody trying to brief that um, if the Prime Minister loses by 50 or fewer, that's actually a win. I mean, I just, 
I don't know what world we live in where the Prime Minister can lose an important vote on the biggest issue for her for her government and lose that vote by 50 or fewer, and that's okay. I think to lose it at all is quite significant. The question is, this: the underlying question really from the point of view of politics is, who's in charge here? Is it the government or the House of Commons? And that's really what we're wrestling over at the moment. So if that vote fails... So she's then got, they've then got the ability to bring back another motion. That's what they have to do, right? I'm just trying to get the process. This is yes. confusing. Yes, right? so basically. And I love this stuff, but this is pretty complicated. It is. So, so, so meaningful vote. Yeah. Then they have 21 days mm-hmm. in which to bring forward a motion in neutral terms on the next steps. Now, tw- in that time, surely someone can put in a vote of no confidence on it. Yes. Which feels not, more likely to not, happen. Not only can they, but will they? Will I mean, they, okay. So the 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 actual reality of the situation is yeah. as soon as she loses that vote, I'd be very surprised if Labour didn't table a motion of no confidence. Yeah. And so we'll do that. And who knows if we win it, then happy days, general election. Although it has to be said, even if we win a motion of no confidence, they've then got 14 days to try and form to get the government, government back together and to win a motion of confidence. If not, as me and Connor spoke about on Friday... It would be, well, depending on what it is, but it could be Boxing Day that that then happens. I Those know, are the 14 I days. I don't, you see, like, I'm sure everyone else listening to the podcast was like, general election starting on Boxing Day, boo-hoo. I was like, oh, sounds great. I was quite upset. But I'm you know, I'm like not the world's <laughs> biggest fan of Christmas. Although Boxing Day in our house, we do have turkey and chips. So that, that's chips. sort of the best meal really. No, see, Boxing Day is my favourite meal. Is it? Yeah, because I'm a big fan of snacks. We're going to do right. a slight aside here. Okay. I'm a big fan of snacks. So over this weekend... We already put up our Christmas tree in our house because yeah. we are super keen. And what did you have? So then we did, so we've got like the smoked salmon, the pigs in blankets, the cheese board, okay. the crackers. And that for me is Boxing okay. Day as well. That's the best bit. So anyway. can I just, can I just say, yeah, we do need to stop talking about snacks and Christmas snacks, but I'm sure we can come back to this on the Christmas episode. We're definitely going to come back to it. Anyway, okay. So we've got vote of no confidence. Vote of no confidence. So if that happens, then they've got 14 days, otherwise general election. Let's suppose for a second that we don't win a vote mm-hmm. of no confidence. Then the government has 21 days to bring forward this mut- motion in neutral terms. Now, that's supposed to say, you know, what they're going to do next. Some people think that they'll try and have another vote on the deal. So if they've managed to whittle down their rebellion on the Tory side, then maybe they would try and come up with some sort of compromise, otherwise promises. So, oh, um, what we'll do is uh, invest lots of money in new technology so that we can demonstrate to you that we will be coming out of the um, backstop uh, position. You know, the the, so, the solution for the Northern Irish border um, in the interim period, this backstop, a lot of Tories are worried that that's just permanent and we're never coming out of that. And so maybe there was... some of the advice that came out some of the legal advice, wasn't it, was that we would basically be in a customs union. And this is why that we're rowing about it. Yeah. But... Suppose that they don't manage to do that. They don't manage to have a second uh, bite of the cherry and then they have to table this motion. Then again, we're back to this question of, is the Commons able to assert itself over the government? And if it is, what does that look like? Now, I come to the conclusion at that point that the arguments about the EEA and other things are a bit gone because we really tried the EEA option previously. You know, We had a big rebellion on the Labour side to try and demonstrate like this is an option you might get votes in support of this it didn't work and I think the House of Commons is just in deadlock and so the only really 
like the only real way out of it is I think a final say for the public. Will we get there? I don't know yet, but that's the aim. So let's, one of the things I think we'd probably need to look at a little bit more now is kind of some of the fundamentals around some of this that we spoke about earlier. But let's just do a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So... Obviously, one of the things that you spoke about earlier was obviously the government's economic assessments that came out last week so that you can do all the stuff that you guys need to do in the Treasury Select Committee this week in terms of informing other MPs and the Commons about how that works. What did it really tell us? What was the kind of, de- not not the detail in some of that, what's the real crux of what that told us? Okay, so as I was saying before, like in many ways, the answer to that question is nothing. Yeah. Um, it certainly didn't tell us anything that we didn't already know about um, No Deal. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, these scenarios are basically just big, long, massive sums. You assume some things like if you have more customs checks that take time at the border, that trade will become more expensive to do and therefore there'll be less of it. So you assume some things and then you look at the impact of the broader economy of that and you conclude whether that makes GDP go up or down. And then we roughly know what the connection uh, should be between GDP and wages and other things. Hmm. So economists normally call this sort of thing a model. And so they create a model, they make some assumptions, they plug into that big long sum, the kind of most up-to-date data about where our economy is and on how it's doing. And then that that brings forward some conclusions. What it tells us is that if there was a big disruption caused by politics to the economy, that stopped people being able to trade in the way they are now, that that might be quite disruptive. But we knew that already. Mm. Um, what it tells us is that, you know, the the more we move away from the European rules and regulations and processes for stuff like manufacturing, that could be quite negative for our economy. But we knew that already. And what I think really is going on here is that the the Bank of England have basically been asked to do this work and they've given a fairly standard answer, which is okay. But 
I think partly the way that the no deal situation has been presented is not unconnected to the idea that we need to resolve this. We need to have some sort of partnership with Europe. And therefore, I mean, I don't think Mark Carney's being particularly political, but I think the government do think that's their strongest argument for their vote is like the badness of no deal. And I think that's obviously true to a certain extent, but no deal doesn't have to happen. The problem is, is the numbers that actually nobody can really see. And that that is because Brexit as a whole degrades our economy. So our European Union membership is one of the fundamental strengths of the British economy. And whether it's integrated manufacturing supply chains or the City of London having places based here, and even just the Brexit vote itself um, has degraded that strength. So one of our witnesses was saying today that, you know, broadly, most economists think that uh, we've had a fall in GDP of about 2% to what it would have otherwise have been. Now, 2% doesn't sound like a lot, um, but 2% of the GDP of a country the size of the United Kingdom is a lot of money. And, you know, GDP in normal times might be expected to grow by about 2% in a year. So it's effectively in in across a period of two years, you know, we have basically lost a whole year's growth. Um, that's significant. And one of the um, one of the problems that people don't always necessarily understand about the way the economy functions is that temporary problems can make a permanent change. So for example, if you live in an area that is negatively affected by Brexit for some reason, and you have several factories closing or offices closing, or um, you live in a place where a company moves out because of Brexit, people in a current employment environment like this, people might get another job. But the question is, will they ever get the job that would put them back in the same position as they would have otherwise been in? So, and this is why the IFS found that the biggest group to be negatively impacted by Brexit are likely to be men over the age of 50 who have very what we what economists would call sticky set of skills. So they're used to doing a particular kind of manufacturing job that isn't easily transferable if those manufacturing jobs are taken away. So I see this in my own constituency where people have been made redundant from manufacturing jobs and they become taxi drivers or um, they end up uh, maybe working in a bar or doing a job that never mind what the skill level is of that role, is never going to pay them and give them as much in pension and benefits as their old job in manufacturing will do. So it's like a permanent degrading of the economy and it will hit particularly in areas where Brexit Brexit is harshest for. So the North East, the North West, Yorkshire. And that's the bit, isn't it, I think with this, is where it's quite easy when you're you're only dealing in statistically you know you're only dealing in percentage points or things like that and that's the only conversation you ever hear of oh it's two percent or it's this philip hammond's line was basically like well it's bad but it's not so bad but it's also like go and tell the person whose job's lost who won't ever get one back again in the same way that it's bad but it's not that bad yeah exactly and that's the difference is like if you're only if you're only looking at the giant picture you can quite like i can see a logic for people that's like well it'll be difficult for now but then it will pick up again and everyone will be fine in the long run but not for those individuals, right? And that's so what Keynes, the economist, said in the long run, we're all dead. 
And the point, oh, just when I thought this podcast couldn't get any more but the depressing. Point, the point he was trying to make was, you know, people always used to make this argument about uh, recessions, especially after the Great Depression, that basically like if government intervened, it might be good in the short term. But in the long run, you know, the cost would be higher if the government intervened. And that's the theory behind laissez-faire economics that Keynes was against. And the point that he was making was basically, yeah, you can on a graph, you can say it's better in the long run. But actually, if the short run changes have such a devastating impact mm. on people, or even in this case, the medium term um, impact, then why should they really care about that long run? I mean, pe people do, people right, rightly will care about stability of pension funds and that sort of thing, which is very much a long run call. But actually, a lot of the turbulence and what economists would call friction, mm. which sounds like friction, it sounds like, you know, it's it's sort of going to be annoying, but it won't be that bad, actually can have a really devastating impact. And that, I think, is what people should be really worried about Brexit for, that it what it represents is, is just a, not necessarily a crash economically, but a slow decline in the quality of jobs and in the position of people who are really not in a massively good place to have options that they can choose between. Hmm. To be honest, if you're a city banker and your company moves to Frankfurt, you'll move to Frankfurt. Like you can get another job, you can, or you can move like, to Frankfurt. If you're numerate, There's loads of things you if can you're do. If you're numerate and you're in the southeast of England, you'll probably be fine. Yeah. But if you live in a town, like if you live in Preston, for example, and a particular big engineering firm moves away, you're in a labour market environment that is not good for you, and that's what really worries me. So I think one of the last things that I think is probably worth touching on, though, is is one of the big things that people are talking about is the idea that it will probably fall on the first vote, but what could happen after that is there's a big crash, and that's a good thing in terms of what the government thinks because then everybody panics, and like what happened in 2007, 2008, everyone panics, first vote falls, all crashes and everyone goes, do you know what? We've just got to get this done and we've just got to have okay. something that we so, pass. So, so Is I, it true? What's, okay. what's, what's I've heard this so many times and it's like wrong-headed in every possible way. Right. So firstly, it's wrong because you don't play politics with people's jobs and the money in their pockets. Like, Literally thought you were about to go into a Welsh accent and it was going to be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> but like, don't, I mean, no way. Mm -hmm. So if anybody in government thinks that they can have a strategy of bringing about a crash, because that will persuade pesky MPs to get in line, then they are bad humans. They are bad people. The, sec the second thing is, it's also not that economically literate, because actually one of the reasons why we didn't have a crash after the Brexit vote was because people could see it coming a bit. Like the campaign wasn't that good. And people, especially in the city, understood it and, you know, had made trades essentially to hedge the value of their currency and other things so that, that crash didn't happen. You know, Brexit is a political crisis. It is not an economic crisis in the short term, in the sense that people will watch the political events that are happening and essentially ensure themselves of those events. So yeah. given... given My, if you brief it, it doesn't feel like that much of a shock, does it? And, and it, you can't really have an economic shock that everyone predicts by definition. So I'm not saying that, you know, there won't be... Uh, huge downturns but if there is it'll because something be about something that was unexpected yeah not about something that you and i are talking about on a podcast right now and the final thing is all of this like is there going to be a crash um i think is just you know it's diversionary from people looking at the real problem here which is that our country's economy was not in a good state already 
and Brexit basically unpicks a lot of the other strengths of it. So we shouldn't be worrying about, um, you know, an immediate downturn over something that is unexpected. Although we should always worry about what we do in those circumstances, which is why the Bank of England does all of its stress testing and all of that jazz. Very good, very important. But the thing that we should worry about is the stuff that we conceal around us all the time, which is bloody food banks. And the fact that, you know, we've got people sleeping rough on the steps of Westminster tube station that we walk past every day. Like, I find it sort of slightly maddening, actually, that people will sit there and talk about, you know, the possibility of collapse in financial markets that, you know, I've actually, even despite what happened in 2008, you know, over Brexit, they've kind of been watching the politics and they broadly understand what's going on and they're trying to take best decisions under difficult circumstances and not worry about the fact that there are literally people sleeping in Westminster Tube Station every night to the extent that somebody died there. Like, mm. that should be our focus. Well, this is it. Like, I mean, I was looking at Twitter this weekend. I try not to, but every now and again. But I was looking at Twitter this weekend and the amount of, like, Tory MPs that you kept seeing, like, smiling at food banks. And it's like, what are you doing? What planet are they And on? also the point where it's like, as I said, like when, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg and the rest were getting angry about well, all of these reports have been released on one day and that's outrageous. It's like, no, what's outrageous is that you want to now pursue something that, which we know is going to make people in this country poorer. That should be where your outrage is, not at about, you know, when a report's released and what it's doing. Well, I mean, I found, I mean, I learned a lot. I'm not going to lie. This is complicated stuff. Um, and I think it would be, you know, remarkable to kind of sit and watch what happens over the next kind of two weeks or so. And I'm sure we'll do this, you know, a bit of an update next week on, right, this is what happened and this is now where we're going. Because as you say, I mean, these are the biggest kind of constitutional, political kind of crisis that we've had to deal with in a very long time so we've got one last thing to do on the podcast and then i'm gonna hopefully hope connor's back next week so that <laughs> i don't have to do this bit again but it's connor's political pub quiz hey. so we've seen ukip thanks guys you were helpful you did some good interventions didn't you so they are marching this weekend with tommy robinson it's unbelievable it's, 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 it's just it's disgusting like, you know you know that something's gone very wrong with the political party when their ex-leader is basically trying to stop their current leader like going into like full-on activism in support of Tommy Robinson. Well, they were founded... Like literally the hard right in defence of the far right. It is mad. They were founded in 1991. But by whom is the political pub quiz question? Do you know, I know the one? answer to this. Well, yeah. that's because well, I'm old. You can tweet it in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, if you if you know the answer to who founded uh, UKIP in 1991, uh, send your answers uh, to at Pope or at Progress Online uh, or email them over to office at progressonline.org.uk and we will let the winner know on Thursday uh, when we do our uh, wrap-up show that happens on Friday that comes out and uh, you could be in a chance with winning a Progress mug. So, And, and meanwhile, don't forget to subscribe or give us all your feedback, which we really like getting. Yeah, great yeah, review. Yeah, you can do it on Spotify now as well. So Spotify, oh, iTunes, yeah. whatever your podcast provider may be. Thank God Connor's back next week. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton, who produced this podcast. <laughs>